Mental illness has been a part of our human history for centuries, but the way we've treated those who suffer from mental illness has evolved significantly over time. In ancient times, people recognized the existence of mental health conditions and tried to explain them through supernatural or mystical means. Throughout the Middle Ages, mental illness treatment was typically centered around demonology, where abnormal behavior was thought to be caused by supernatural forces like demonic possession or witchcraft. By the 18th century, people who were seen as strange or abnormal were confined to asylums where they were subjected to inhumane treatment. These individuals were frequently kept in dark, underground cells, were physically abused and restrained with chains with limited access to caregivers. Going into more modern times, even the American asylums, which were built with good intent for healing and compassionate care, fell to horrific practices and extreme overcrowding. Stay tuned as we explore the history of mental illness treatment and dive in with us to hear the stories of two particularly awful American insane asylums. Welcome to the Weird and Wicked podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Rachel. And we're two sisters with a passion for the mysterious and the unknown. On our podcast, we'll explore killer cases and the most puzzling phenomena. Come with us down the rabbit hole where we'll take a magnifying glass to the most bizarre, unnerving, and unbelievable stories. From true crime and conspiracy theories to ghosts and cryptids, we'll cover it all. Today, we'll be talking about the history of insane asylums, and then we'll dive in and share what we learned about two specific asylums that could truly be considered a disgrace to the field of mental health. So better buckle in for some pretty unhinged stories today. This is definitely gonna be a crazy one. Let's get into it. So let's go back. I mean, way back to ancient times. During that time, mental health theories were often intertwined with supernatural beliefs. Symptoms such as demonic possessions, curses, sorcery, or divine punishment were commonly treated through a procedure called trephining. Trephining? I think that's right. <laughs> trephining. This involves using basic stone tools to bore a hole into the skull. These stone tools were eventually upgraded to to skull saws and drills that were developed specifically for this procedure. Creepy. In I know. Ugh, it just sounds like a recipe for disaster. In less violent cases, priest doctors would conduct rituals rooted in different religions and superstitions as they believed that possession was the cause of these mental disturbances. These rituals included prayer, atonement, inc- incantations, and exorcisms. So, like we mentioned, many ancient cultures attributed mental illness to supernatural forces, often perceiving it as a punishment from a deity. However, the ideas around mental illness progressed with the influence of early European philosophers. Around the 5th to the 3rd centuries BCE, 
Hippocrates, a Greek physician, rejected the notion that mental instability was the result of supernatural punishment and instead believed it to be a result of natural causes in the body, particularly the brain. Kind of the first idea of mental health being related to the brain. It was like that first time somebody had that idea. Exactly. And he was almost on the right track, except not quite. But we can get, we'll get into that later. In addition to Hippocrates, two other Greek thinkers, Galen and Socrates, believed that the human body was composed of four fundamental elements, blood, bile, black bile, and phlegm. They believed that the balance of these humors determined an individual's personality and unique traits, and that mental illness could result from an imbalance of these humors. To balance the humors, doctors during that period used a variety of treatments such as administering laxatives, emetics to induce vomiting, which I had never heard of before, (laughs) leech therapy, and cupping therapy, which is interesting because I think that's something people do today unless it was a different form of it. Yeah, I've definitely heard of the leeches before. Yeah. Which is really interesting. (laughs) Weird. Could you imagine you being deemed as, like, mentally ill and then they're trying to, like, put leeches on you to Mm -hmm. drain your blood or something? (laughs) Scary. Yeah. Various recipes such as those containing aloes, black hellborn, and colocynth were used to treat depression. Tobacco from the Americas was also used to make patients vomit and expel excess humors. Some treatments even involved bloodletting by extracting blood from the forehead and tapping veins to release the guilty humors from the brain specifically. I've heard about that too. Yeah. (laughs) It's kind of interesting. For some reason, I remember learning about this in like middle school or something. I can't remember if it was in high school or if it was was college course. But I know I learned that in some class that I took. There were also some less invasive treatments, though. Specialized diets were prescribed, such as a diet of salad greens, barley water, and milk for ravaging madmen, who were also advised to avoid red wine and meat. I thought this was funny. (laughs) Yeah. Very interesting choice of diet. Mm -hmm. For these raving (laughs) madmen. Yes. So traditionally, the responsibility of caring for mentally ill patients fell on their families. And professional care facilities were rare until the establishment of the first mental hospital in Baghdad in 792 CE. In Europe, however, it was a common source of shame and humiliation for families to have custody of of mentally ill patients. Consequently, many resorted to hiding their loved ones in cellars, caging them, delegating them to servants, or even abandoning them to become beggars on the streets. Oh, so sad. I know. In some cases, mentally ill individuals were even subject to physical punishment as a form of reprisal. Is that how you say that word? I forget. I think so. For their disruptive behavior or in an attempt to beat the illness out of them. Which is just brutal. Who thought of this? I know, right? (laughs) At least it wasn't all bad, though. 
In 872, the emir of Egypt and Syria at the time constructed a hospital in Cairo that catered to the needs of the mentally ill. The hospital's treatments included music therapy, which is kind of cool. Sounds yeah. pleasant. I thought that was cool compared to all this other stuff that we were yeah. hearing about. I wonder how that, um, like, how the how treatment went. Like, yeah. yeah. Hmm. During the medieval period, treatment options for mentally ill individuals were limited, with most of the burden falling on their families to care for them. However, for those whose families were unable to provide adequate care, there were a few options available. One of these was the workhouse, which was essentially a public institution where the poorest people in a church parish were given basic room and board in exchange for work. While not specifically intended for mentally ill patients, workhouses did provide a basic level of care for those who had nowhere else to go. Another option was to admit the patient to a general hospital, but these institutions were often overcrowded and understaffed, which meant that the mentally ill patients were frequently abandoned and ignored. In many cases, they were simply locked away in a room and left to their own devices. Which, again, how do you just yeah. let that happen? Don't you It's mean? really sad. Yeah. Clergy and various churches also played a role in the treatment of mentally ill individuals, as some medical practices were considered an extension of priest's duty. For those who could afford it, private homes run by members of the clergy provided a more specialized level of care and comfort. In countries with majority Catholic populations, mental health facilities were often staffed by members of the clergy, while in Russia, Orthodox monasteries housed most of the nation's mentally ill until the rise of asylums. However, these facilities were unable to keep up the growing demand for mental health treatment. This paved the way for the development of the infamous asylums. These institutions functioned more like prisons than treatment centers, as we know. Mm -hmm. And in some cases, they were even more brutal than actual prisons. The idea of providing proper care and support for mentally ill individuals was not present. And instead, the main goal was to isolate them from their families and the rest of society, with the aim of reducing the potential harm they could cause to their communities. That's just ridiculous. It's just so sad. Yeah. It's such a, an uneducated viewpoint. Uh, mm-hmm. Like, yeah, they didn't under, didn't understand it, but mm-hmm. it's just insane that it got to that point. Yeah. It's sad that they, ha- instead of like actually helping the people who needed to be treated, instead they were just even more ostracized. Mm-hmm. Like. They went there so they wouldn't, so they could possibly solve their problems, and it just got worse. It got way worse. We are always super excited to learn about obscure conspiracies, creepy ghost stories, and really anything that will keep us up at night. So if you have something you'd like us to cover, fill out our case submission form on our website. So moving on through history, during the 19th century, psychiatry, which was then referred to as alienism, great word for it, Mm -hmm. (laughs) experienced a period of development. 
This coincided with the establishment of institutions aimed at providing medical treatment and accommodation for those who were deemed insane. The treatments offered during this period included pseudoscientific methods such as phrenology and freezing baths. Mm. Um, No, thank you. Yeah, no. Between 1850 1850 and 1900, women who expressed strong opinions and refused to conform to the expectations of a male-dominated society were sometimes institutionalized. This was often done by their male relatives, such as husbands, fathers, or brothers who had complete control over their financial and personal affairs. Additionally, the lack of property rights for married women prior to the Married Women's Property Act of 1882 gave men a financial incentive incentive to institutionalize their wives, as all of their wives' assets automatically became her husband's property. Mm -hmm. By labeling these women as mentally ill, the men in charge could easily silence their voices and assert their dominance, leaving the women powerless and submissive. There's just so much wrong with that. Yeah. (laughs) The fact that they could just, like, essentially claim their wife it like needs mental health put them in an institution and then they just get everything that yeah then they're just left yeah they're forgotten about as if they didn't have any rights to begin with <laughs> the fact that that was that easy is just despicable yeah mm-hmm. thank god we didn't live back then i know it would it's just those were horrible times horrible horrible So, state asylums were first established in the United States with the passing of the initial law for one in New York in 1842. The Utica State Hospital was established around 1850, as were numerous other hospitals that were largely the result of the tireless work of Dorothy... Dorothea? I think so. Yeah, Dorothea. (laughs) Quite the name. Dorothea Lind Dix... Dix's philanthrop philanthropy. I can't. I can never say that word right. It's a hard I'm word. To so say. bad with that word. <laughs> I know it's philanthropy, but philanthropic. Do you say <laughs> philanthropic? Okay, I looked at philanthropic. This word. I don't know. <laughs> I looked at this word like three times, and I was like, "Is that it's how you terrible. say it?" I'm so bad at pronouncing Is words. Is that general. even a word? Let's make sure that that's a word. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think it's philanthropic. That sounds right to me. Yeah. Dix's philanthropic efforts were felt across multiple states, as well as in Europe, stretching as far as Constantinople. Wow. I'm surprised I remember how to (laughs) pronounce that one. (laughs) That was easy compared to philanthropic. Oh, jeez. brain, I swear. <laughs> That's what happens when you come from Catholic school. True. Oh, jeez. Um, so many state hospitals across the United States were built during the 1850s and 1860s based on the Kirkbride plan, an architectural style intended to have a therapeutic effect. While a lot of the practices happening at this time could be considered inhumane and disgusting, At Montrose Asylum, 
William Brown pioneered various therapeutic activities for patients, such as writing, art, group activities, and drama. He is recognized for his early work in occupational therapy and art therapy. This is so he, cool. It's not I know, that's, Actually, I didn't know that at all. Really? Um, going into this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's the first time I've heard of that. I know I've heard of William Brown before, but I didn't okay. know he was the first to like start uh, art therapy. But Very interesting. Kind of interesting. I love how it's just such a difference from all this other horrible crap that's going on. Mm-hmm. There, other people are like, lock them away. We yeah. don't need them in society. And this guy actually recognized the fact that some of these basic activities could actually help them. Yeah. Um, I thought it was really I, interesting. I feel like it's because I at one point wanted to get into art therapy. I don't so mm. as much anymore. But um, I always found that the most interesting part of it is the fact that like something as simple as a hobby can yeah. like, change somebody's perspective on their own life oh my god like if you give them if they find something that they love doing that they're passionate about it can turn them into a completely different person Mm -hmm. so true so that's why i originally wanted to get into it (laughs) yeah that would be cool um he even initiated one of the earliest collections of artistic works by patients William Brown played a significant role in reforming the lunatic asylum during the mid-19th century. He was also an advocate of phrenology, which was considered a new science at that time. (laughs) Yeah, Um, science. And if you don't know about phrenology, it's really interesting. Um, Mm -hmm. Phrenology is a pseudoscientific theory that was popular in the 19th century, It claimed that an individual's character and mental abilities could be determined by the shape and size of their skull. Practitioners of phrenology believed that the brain was divided into different regions, and each region was responsible for a specific personality trait or mental ability. Um, So, like, pretty much they believed, like, this part of the brain right here is responsible for, um, I don't know, your artistic the artistic ability that you have yeah. and then this one is like your ability to i don't know um, like process stuff or like, stuff like, like that talk or like you know yeah. something is some and then like one is like your anger and then one is your like happiness and it there's like charts that show like they literally would map out somebody's brain <laughs> and then yeah. they believe that's how the brain worked Um, And everybody's was different. Um, And then I thought it was weird, too, how they mentioned or how they thought the shape and the size Mm -hmm. of your skull Mm -hmm. had to do with all of that as well. Yeah. So if you had a really – if your head was shaped like – A certain way. your skull was kind of bigger in one area, then it meant your brain was bigger in that area, which (sighs) meant that, like, you had a – higher um level of empathy or something like something along those lines Mm -hmm. it's so weird yeah but um yeah definitely pseudoscience for Um, sure phrenology has been discredited and is no longer considered a valid scientific theory it's still interesting to to read about yeah it's definitely a huge part of the like 
history of psychology as a whole because mm-hmm. it, even though it's been discredited it is like the beginning foundations it's just True. like one of those ideas it's kind of interesting to see the um, evolution of how we figured out how the brain actually works yeah in 1887, journalist Nellie Bly faked her own insanity to gain admission into New York's Blackwell Island Asylum. Elizabeth is also known for her record-breaking trip around the world in 72 days. I'm sure everybody's heard of that. Yeah. Everybody's read that children's book when they were in first grade about, right? so- about her. Uh, there might be books about her, but I guess there's that one book where it's like travel a world in 80 days. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But she, I guess, saw that book and was like, I'm going to try to do that. So she ended up oh, yeah, reading yeah. it. Maybe that's she, what I'm thinking of. It's the other one that I probably read. But yeah, but I, I, when finding this, I thought I had heard of her too, but I definitely remembered the book. Mm-hmm. But she ended up doing it in 72 days. And for the majority of the time, I find I found out that she was alone traveling by herself around Which the entire crazy. world in, in 1887. <laughs> I was like, damn girl, you go. Yeah. I don't know if that's, I could do that. That's in 2023. insane. Right? Like that's unheard of for a woman in that time. So Really cool. So Bly faced a number of difficulties in getting admitted to the asylum. She first checked herself into a boarding house called Temporary Homes for Females, where she stayed up all night to appear distressed. She then accused other boarders of being insane and refused to sleep. This frightened the other boarders, lead leading the police to take her to court where she was examined by a police officer, a judge, and a doctor before being admitted to Blackwell's Island Asylum, which is so weird. (laughs) People are like, okay, this girl is weird. We need to get the police. (laughs) (laughs) Right. During her stay, Bly witnessed the terrible conditions at the asylum prompting her to write a report that was published in 1887 as 10 Days in a Madhouse, and it was later turned into a book. This report caused a sensation and led to reforms in the asylum. Bly's impact on American culture and her focus on marginalized women beyond the asylum brought her lasting fame and established her as a pioneer of stunt journalism. Later in 1893, Bly leveraged her celebrity status to secure an interview with Lizzie Halliday, a notorious serial killer who is believed to be insane. We definitely have to see if we can do an episode on this because it's very interesting. I've actually, I knew about, um, I knew about Nellie Bly, aka Elizabeth Seaman. Okay. From one of my classes that I've taken before. Mm-hmm. And I think I remember uh, here, like, briefly reading about how she met with this serial killer lady. Okay. Um, but the, her whole, honestly, everything about Elizabeth Seaman is so interesting. Anything She's she a did. badass, I <laughs> yeah. swear to God. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I definitely want to look her. into that. Um, it's giving me hella Mindhunter vibes. Like, mm-hmm. trying to get into the mind of a serial killer. Yeah, interviewing them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We'll definitely be doing some more research on that. Yes. <clears throat> Towards the end of the 19th century, 
most industrialized countries had established national systems of regulated asylums for the mentally ill. In Britain and France, the number of patients in asylums rose from a few hundred at the turn of the century to hundreds of thousands by the end of the century. The United States had 150,000 patients in mental hospitals in, by 1904, and Germany had all, over 400 public and private sector asylums. That's insane. Which is crazy how much it grew. They were basically, like, just picking people up off the streets, throwing them in the asylum. Right? Like, that's how horrible it was. God. Despite the optimism in the mid-19th century that mental illness could be effectively treated, this hope was not realized. In fact, psychiatrists faced mounting pressure from an increasing number of patients, leading to a surge in asylum populations in the United States, Britain, and Germany by up to 927%. France also experienced overcrowding, with asylums taking in twice their maximum capacity. The reasons for the surge in patient numbers remain disputed, but it may have been due to the transfer of care from families and poor houses. As a result of the strain on asylums, their reputation declined and many reverted to being custodial institutions. So it's just wild. This yeah, this was a growing, pro- like a fast-growing problem. Mm-hmm. During the 1800s, middle-class facilities replaced private care for wealthier individuals. However, these facilities were often oversubscribed, and admission was usually reserved for dangerous or violent cases referred to by the community or the criminal justice system. Defining someone as insane was was necessary for admission and a doctor was only called after an individual was labeled insane on social terms and had become socially or economically problematic until the 1890s there was little distinction between the lunatic and criminal lunatic with the term often used to police vagrancy as well as beggars and the insane During the late 1910s, 1920s, and 1930s, psychiatric medicine underwent an experimental period that questioned the conventional approach to treating chronic psychiatric illnesses such as schizophrenia in asylums, which were thought to be incurable. In 1920, deep sleep therapy utilizing barbiturates was introduced, followed by insulin shock therapy in 1933 in cardiozole shock therapy in 1934. I hope I said that right. Mm -hmm. Electroconvulsive therapy developed in 1938 and eventually replaced these. So a lot of different just therapies, I guess you could say. They're just trying trying everything right right now. Yeah. (laughs) In the 19th. See what sticks. (laughs) Tens to the 30s. Uh, They were just... (laughs) trying it basically all. doing experience or experience <laughs> basically <laughs> doing experiments at this point yeah psychosurgery such as lobotomy was reserved for a limited number of individuals with specific conditions egos moniz performed the first frontal lobotomy in portugal in 1935 This procedure was later adapted by Walter Freeman and James Watts, also known as the Freeman-Watts procedure, 
or standard prefrontal lobotomy. Freeman developed the transorbital lobotomy in 1946, which could be performed in an office in as little as 15 minutes. He is credited with popularizing the technique in the U.S. with 5,074 lobotomies carried out in the country in 1949 and 18,608 by 1951, which like, uh, excuse me. That's crazy. An insane amount. However, the procedure was controversial and led to intellectual disability in many patients, including Rosemary Kennedy, the sister of John F. Kennedy. Just in case people don't know what a lobotomy is, I think a lot of people do, but just in case you don't know, look up a few, like, just Google it and take a look at what it is. But basically, they would take, like, a metal rod. Like an ice pick. Yeah, basically an ice pick. Put it through your eye, like right in, right past your tear duct, kind of, and they would push it through to your frontal lobe or your frontal cortex. I think. I think so. And the whole point of it was, I think they had like a little hammer or something. They would like stick it in and then like hit the hammer on the mm-hmm. back end of the um, pick. And the whole point of it was to like sever the connections um between your um your prefrontal cortex and like the other parts of your brain so that there would be they wouldn't be able to talk to each other anymore which is wild yeah so it would literally change the entire personality of some people Mm -hmm. because those parts of your brain can't communicate anymore because there's no connection So that's why they thought it was, like, a good cure, I guess, Mm -hmm. for some um, mental illnesses because it would just, like, stop that communication completely, which in the end now we know that's not really great. Yeah. (laughs) That's not what we want to do. But not what you want to (laughs) do. Exactly. We had to learn that the hard way. With most things that Mm -hmm. the human race decides to do, I feel like. Right. Yeah. But it's really interesting that um, Rosemary Kennedy was mm-hmm. um, a patient. That I wonder one. how hers turned out because there were instances, I believe, where people were kind of okay. Like they weren't necessarily themselves, mm-hmm. but there are also a lot of others where there were like serious other problems that happened or e- people even died from this. So Right. What's that one case with the guy that that had like a pole go through his eye and out like the back I of his skull that. and he survives? Yes. I forget his name, I but forget. it's kind of like that where it's just like you're not who your brain is not what it used to be. Therefore, yeah. you're not the same person because there's no there's not the correct communication going yeah. on between your nerves and your brain and stuff like that. It's just that kind of stuff is so interesting to me. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons I got into psychology. Yeah. Too. It's very interesting. <laughs> I forget that name, the name of that guy that that's another really me. interesting case. Yeah. But um, a, a short case, there's not much to it, but um, yeah, it was, I'm wild. sure he if was we like texted mom around. right now, she would know. She would, but... Yeah, that's true. <laughs> But yeah, freaking crazy. 
Hey dudes, it's us dropping by to let you know about the sick party happening over on our socials. Yeah, if you aren't following us yet, you're seriously missing out. So we know some of these cases can get pretty heavy. We wanted to create a more lighthearted and fun conversation on our socials. If that sounds like something you'd be interested in, you can find us at Weird and Wicked Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. And at Weird and Wicked on Twitter. We can't wait to see you over there. So in the early 1900s, there was a notable increase in the number of individuals being admitted to to asylums, leading to severe overcrowding, as if there wasn't already. Funding cuts during economic recessions and wartime periods caused patients to die from starvation, and asylums became infamous for their appalling living conditions, lack of hygiene, overcrowding and mistreatment and abuse of patients so sad i know yeah the eugenics movement which aimed to breed out defects and isolate people with disabilities to prevent procreation gained significant influence between the two world wars in britain charles darwin's son lobbied for the government to arrest and segregate those deemed unfit or sterilize them In Germany, medical professionals and lawyers advocated for extermination or for the extermination of people with disabilities, with the essay permitting the destruction of life unworthy of life, serving as a blueprint for the Nazis' future atrocities. So it was basically early, like, not racial cleansing, but like, I don't know how you would describe if, it, like would you mental it ability mental cleansing. cleansing. Yeah. It's yeah. so sad, though. It's horrible. The fact that this is what they're resorting to or mm-hmm. one wanting to resort to. Basically, just... if they if somebody deemed you incapable of being like a fully functioning human being, they could their solution was to just get rid of you so you wouldn't be in the gene pool anymore where was the line because i know a lot of people were admitted to these hospitals or considered mentally ill for this the dumbest stuff Mm -hmm. like there was um, no line it was just we get into like some of the reasons why more modern people were admitted into these hospitals but like i'm sure that was the case still like the Mm -hmm. women like, imagine just saying something and then being immediately deemed yeah. unfit of life. And, like, that could be something as simple as, like, speaking up for yourself mm-hmm. and, like, voicing your opinion about something. Exactly. In those times, that was, like, frowned upon. Like, women shouldn't have to – or they shouldn't need to do that. They shouldn't do that at all. Because it's all up to the men anyway. So why would they have an opinion? <laughs> Just love it. Yeah. Great ideas here. Yeah, definitely. Being sarcastic. If you, if you <laughs> yes. <know. laughs> In 1939, the Nazi regime began... How do you say that? Act on? Act, action? I don't even know. It's a very... I, I think, think it's action. Action yeah. T4. Probably action T4. German it's like a German way of spelling it. A-K-T-I-O-N. Yeah. So in 1939, the Nazi regime began Action T4, which I think is how you say it, which transformed 
psychiatric institutions into killing centers for children and adults with disabilities. Midwives were forced to report babies born with disabilities, and parents were coerced into placing their children in institutions, which were then turned into centers of extermination. Over 5,000 children and 200,000 disabled adults were killed. It's wild to me that this isn't talked about more often. I know, yeah. I don't know. And again, like, the, your, your baby's born, and then someone just decides... Oh, it mm-hmm. looks like it has a disability. Time yeah. to take it away. Like, like, what if you can? What if you can work with it? You know, yeah. like, what if it's like nowadays where you can nurture somebody like that to mm-hmm. the point where they they they're not completely useless. Like, <laughs> you no know, no thought to that whatsoever. Yeah. It's just really sad that they were immediately like, no, throw them away. So these heinous crimes served as one of the catalysts for a shift away from institutionalized approaches to mental health and disability in the second half of the 20th century. Although community-based alternatives were suggested in the 1920s and 1930s, the number of admissions to asylums continued to rise until the 1950s. The movement towards deinstitutionalization gained momentum in various Western countries during the 1950s and 1960s, but the pace and timing of reforms varied by country and public arguments differed. Class action lawsuits in the U.S. and disability activism, along with the scrutiny of institutions by anti-psychiatry movements, helped shed light on the poor conditions and treatments of patients. Sociologists and others argued that institutions fostered dependency, passivity, exclusion, and disability leading to institutionalization. Some suggested that community services would be more cost-effective, and the development of new psychiatric medications made it more practical to release individuals into the community. However, there were differing opinions on deinstitutionalization among mental health professionals, public officials, families, advocacy groups, public citizens, and unions. So at least at this point, like, some light is being shed on the the poor treatment of people in these institutions. Some people are talking about it and, like, getting the conversation going. Right. In the 20th century, deinstitutionalization led to the closure of many psychiatric hospitals. This became known as the process of substituting long-stay psychiatric hospitals with more integrated community-based mental health services for individuals with mental illness or developmental disabilities. This movement gained momentum in the 1960s, with the introduction of antipsychotic drugs playing a significant role in enabling this movement. However, it was the social movements that pushed for reforms during this period that truly spurred the moment Oh my god, the moment that truly spurred the movement forward. <laughs> I can't. <laughs> oh god. Okay. A lot of a lot of words. <laughs> so many big words in this one. I can't. 
<clears throat> deinstitutionalization is there like every other sentence. It's torture. In conclusion, the 20th century saw the beginning of the deinstitutionalization movement, which aimed to replace long term psychiatric hospitals with community based mental health services. This movement was driven by social and political changes, as well as medical advancements such as the development of antipsychotic drugs. As a result, community services like family support, community residences, and mental health offices were established to facilitate the transition toward community-based systems. Today, these services have become integral to the mental health care system providing diverse forms of support and care for individuals with mental illnesses and developmental disabilities. Despite their widespread use, it is important to recognize the historical significance of the deinstitutionalization movement and the efforts made to provide more humane and effective care for those in need. Asylums in the traditional sense of the term no longer exist in many parts of the world due to the deinstitutionalization movement. However, mental health institutions still play a role in treating individuals with mental illnesses. As for tourism, some former asylums have been repurposed into tourist attractions, with visitors able to tour the facilities and learn about the history of mental health treatment. Today, haunted asylums have become a popular destination due to the combination of their already eerie atmosphere and the supernatural concept of ghosts. These places have become a hot spot for ghost hunters and thrill seekers looking for spine-tingling experiences. The allure of these places can be seen as a reflection of society's fascination with the morbid and the mysterious. However, it is important to remember the very real suffering that took place within these institutions and to approach their history with respect. Keeping that in perspective, let's delve into the dark history of two asylums, both notorious for their grim past. And if we decide to, in post, make this into two episodes instead of one, tune in next week for the second half, where we'll dive into two different asylums that have a rich history Oh, yeah. Um, And reputation. You're definitely going to want to tune in or you're definitely going to want to listen to them. um, Yes. Because they further dive into some of the topics that we touched on today. And Mm -hmm. they kind of paint these and just show you exactly how it really was back then. And we even have a personal connection to one of the two so definitely listen to that episode if we if it's not included in this one um listen to next week's for sure to figure out what that might be please if you enjoyed this episode share it with a friend we would Mm -hmm. love to grow and get more people in on this conversation Mm -hmm. um so feel free to do so all right thank you guys for watching Thanks, you guys. And we'll see you in the next episode. See ya. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Weird and Wicked podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to share it with a friend. 
And don't forget to subscribe and follow us on all of our socials so you know when the next episode is up. Around the 5th to the 3rd centuries BCE, Hippocrates, a Greek physician, was he a physician? I have no idea. I thought he was just a, what do they call them? (laughs) Philosopher. Yeah, he was a physician. Oh, okay. (laughs) I'm going to start that over. (laughs) William Brown played a significant role in reforming the lunatic asylum. (laughs) Oh my god. I'm so dumb. That was really, really bad. I'm so dumb. No, you're not. I'm like trying to like figure out how to pronounce all these words. words. My brain thought it was so much harder than it was. (laughs) It actually was. Lunatic. Lunatic. Okay. (laughs) Alright, let me just restart that that whole sentence. (laughs) (laughs) That's actually really fucking good. (laughs) Oh, what's wrong with you? Psych. Psychiatric medicine underwent an experimental period. <laughs> I just can't speak. I'm gonna start here. We're, too, we're doing terrible today. <laughs> like for a while, I'm going great, and then all of a yeah. sudden, my words hit Yeah. Oh, I was joined by the bean. I saw the bean's tail <laughs> go across the screen. Oh jeez. Oh, <laughs> he just sits down so quick. He's he like, does. I'm sitting here. Including rosemary, kenami, kenami, What is that? We <laughs> do that whole sentence. In the late 20th century, deinstitutionalization led to the closure of many psych. Oh my god! It's just a rough day today. <laughs> Too many like. Psychiatry, psychiatry, mm-hmm. deinstitutionalization. Like like <laughs> yeah. Oh my god. Lunacy. Right. <laughs> Lunatic. Lunatic. 